So there's no such thing as an atheist on top of a mountain. I did the math this week and put the numbers together. And uh, conservatively, I could say after doing the math that I've been on the top of mountains in our state with over 5,000 people. If you've ever been on the top of Mount Elbert or Long's Peak, you know it's actually far more than this number of 5,000 that I've actually been on the tops of mountain with. And here's the interesting thing. Every time I've been up there, in all my time, no one has ever said, oh, look at this pile of rocks. Cool. No one's ever gone, oh, wow, all these tectonic plates came together, and um, look at this, just a random, random assortment of mountains here. So what? No, no, no. People don't use those kind of phrases on top of mountains. People use spiritual words on top of mountains. Okay? They actually, not knowing it, they use words of worship. They say awe-inspiring. They say worshipful. They say beautiful. They, it is something uh, magnificent, something glorious. Going to the top of a mountain is a spiritual experience for humanity. Since the beginning of time, we have gone to the top of mountains for a reason. To look for something more, to dream about the world, to find something bigger than ourselves. So I need to take you to the top of a mountain today. A very specific mountain. In fact, it actually looks like this mountain. It's now called the Mount of the Beatitudes. But in Jesus' day, it was a hillside looking over the Sea of Galilee uh, just outside of Capernaum, where Jesus walked up with this view. We don't know exactly where he sat, but he began to teach. And over the next 10 weeks, we are going to look at the things that Jesus taught on top of this mountain. But for a second, I want you to just imagine with me, think with me about what it would be like if you were one of the people sitting there listening to him that day. Roman occupation is crushing you and your family. The taxes are so high, you can hardly keep up with them. You're carrying around soldiers' gear. In some cases, they're actually, the Romans are possessing the land you've owned for generations. And you are required to work that land for them. You are now their servant. And they're taxing you on your meager wages that you are given for working this land that your family once owned. You want to love God. You want to honor God. But the Sadducees, see, they've teamed up with King Herod and with the Romans and the temple. So you need to give. You are required as part of your faith to have this animal deemed as spotless for sacrifice. But the cost of that. The wages that you have to pay to do such a thing is outrageous. Then there's this other group, the Pharisees, who are like, you know what? All these laws, all these commandments aren't enough. Let's stack some more onto it. And maybe you're sick of all those, those options. So you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to team up with Simon's buddies, the zealots. And we're going to escape to the hillsides. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to be an army. And we're going to overthrow Rome just like the Maccabees did before us. But the bottom line is your family's hurting. It's barely surviving. It's pushed to its limits. And you and all your friends and everyone in the country is praying, please send us a Messiah. Please send us a king to overcome what is happening here. And so word of mouth gets around to you. There's this unusual rabbi 
This rabbi calling his own disciples something which was out of the norm for his day. He's declaring the kingdom of God in the synagogues. He's healing the sick. And so the question you and your family and your friends are asking is, could this be the one? Could this be the one prophesied uh, to come? Could this be the one coming to save us? Is God seeing us? Is God going to answer our prayers and our plight? So some of your friends, they're sold. They say, this is the God. They make the commitment to follow him. They give up everything. They're baptized. They are a disciple of Jesus. Others are on the fence. But what's his platform? What does he actually stand for? He's doing all these things, but what are his actual teachings? That's what you want to hear. So you gather with a large group who is uh, following this guy, and you're trying to hear what this is all about. Because before we hear what Jesus says, we must first recognize we're not all that different from the first hearers in this sense. What usually attracts us to Jesus is the incredible, compelling love of Jesus, okay? And then the miracles. And we hear about these things and we're like, oh, that's great. And then we're all in various stages. We come to church today all in various stages in our spiritual journey. Some are devoted disciples of Jesus and some are on the fence just kind of trying to figure this thing out and uh, see what Jesus is really all about, And so we have to get to the point, all of us in our spiritual journey, where we ask, okay, so this Jesus guy, there's something about him, but what are his teachings? What does he really exactly have to say to us? What does he have uh, to teach to us? And that's what we're going to be looking at all the way until Easter, 10 weeks, two sections a week, and we're going to look at Jesus's most famous teaching, this teaching that has impacted billions of people on our planet for thousands of years, this teaching referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. So before we open the good book, would you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, may we come to have ears to hear the words of your Son and your kingdom with eyes to see this kingdom that he's bringing. Open our hearts and stir our imagination of this different, better way to live. More than anything, Father, today help us to receive, to receive this word from you, this blessing from you, this identity from you. So to that end, pour through me the gift of preaching that Christ may be formed in hearts. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So how do you start the greatest sermon of all time? That is the question. Well, it starts like this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you. 
persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because your great is your reward in heaven for in the same way the pro, they were per, or, yeah for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I remember the first time I heard what we call now the beatitudes. And I had probably heard it before several times, but this is actually the first time I remember hearing it. I was growing up in high school in Bible class, and the teacher presented this. And I was in high school, and you know what? In high school, in no other time in life are you cooler than when you were in high school. I mean, when you're in high school, you think you're pretty cool, right? Confidence level's high. So the teacher reads this, and I go, Oh my goodness, this is the loser's list. Nobody likes this list. How is this list good at all? Who even cares about this list? This is the worst list I've ever heard in my entire life. And at that point, I should have known I was destined to be a preacher. Right? Because the elephant in the room is, how exactly are these people blessed? A beatitude is a blessing. Out of the Greek word used here is where we derive the English word happiness. In other words, Jesus is saying this is what it means to live the good life. On first glance, that doesn't look that list like the good life. So before you judge me too harshly, let's recognize that our culture has an entirely different set of beatitudes that we are encouraged to live by. In fact, we often live by them, and they are so subtle to us. They are so deeply ingrained and embedded in our morals and our ethic and how we live, we can hardly recognize them. So let's listen to the world's beatitudes. It sounds something like this. Blessed are the ones who act rich. Because you will feel like you have achieved the American dream. Blessed are those who are always happy, for you have avoided the sorrows of this life. Blessed are the prideful, for everyone will admire you. Blessed are those who can afford organic food, for you will have superior nutrition. Blessed are those who get revenge, for nobody will want to mess with you. Blessed are the shrewd, for nobody will take advantage of them. Blessed are the ones who win all their arguments, because no one will dare oppose them. Blessed are you when people like your social media posts, talk highly of you, and want to be connected to you, because you will be seen as an influence. Rejoice and be glad, because you have achieved the good life in this world. For honest, this is what we're told to live every day. This is the beatitude the glimpse of what is given to us, to live by any other ethic than this is often seen, seen as strange or weird or bizarre. And yet Jesus has an entirely different way to live. And if you can just see it, if you can see beyond the high school version of myself, you can see how brilliant this is and it'll change your life forever. So let me explain by going quickly through some of these different Beatitudes. The first four Beatitudes declare a blessing for those who are traditionally understood as being defended by God. The rest are those people who are blessed for doing what is right. So let me end with, or start with the end and we'll work our way up to the beginning. Blessed are you when people insult you. I don't know about you, but I don't feel too blessed when I'm being insulted. Not a good feeling 
right? It gets worse. Blessed are you when you are persecuted um, and evil is said about this. Now, the rejoicing in this comes from the fact that our names are written in heaven. And that takes a lot of faith to believe that there is something better coming than this world. What about persecuted for righteousness? If you are uh, actually persecuted for doing God's will, you're joining in the kingdom work and there is a blessing for that. Have you ever uh, realized that we don't often recognize the peacemakers in our society? We think a lot of the winners of the argument and the peacemakers who do a great job of holding communities together, churches together, and compromise, and often go unnoticed, or no one even recognizes that they did the peacemaking work. We don't value them. Think about the pure in heart. Now, the pure in heart here is not so much moral purity as it is a singular focus. If your singular focus in life is to follow God, Man, that takes away a lot of the other distractions, as Jim was talking about in our communion metaphors, we focus on the cross. Um, If you have ever received mercy when you didn't deserve mercy, you know how impactful it is to be merciful. How about hungering or thirsting for righteousness? It is this longing or this desire to do good above all other ways in life. Maybe you've had some rebellious moments in your life where you thought doing bad was actually better than doing good and you realize just how actually fulfilling it is to, to seek and to be filled by what is good. Or the weirdest word I think in here is the meek. Never have I ever heard someone say, you know what, that person would be a really good elder because they're just so meek. We don't say things like that. We say things like, no, they're a great delegator or a manager or some other business term to describe why they'd be a good elder, right? But the beauty of a humble and gentle person to show restraint, that's often overlooked and understated. Even harder to understand is the blessing of those who mourn. Mourning. Think about when we are mourning and grieving the loss of someone. Often we like to do that out of sight where people can't see it. Crying, even still today, is seen as this embarrassing form of weakness. And yet, you know what's so interesting what we've experienced here? These impactful times where we celebrate the ones who have gone on asleep in Christ and we mourn and we grieve their loss and God does something with it. We get comforted by this supernatural peace when we're mourning because Jesus is there with us in those moments. But the most powerful, the most powerful of all these phrases I want to sit on for just a minute. The one that sticks out to me are blessed in the poor in spirit. It is uh, the word here, it's a loaded term referring back to a Hebrew word. A Hebrew word that is pronounced anawim. 
Anawim. If you understand the power of this phrase, I think you can get a glimpse of the power of all of the Beatitudes of what Jesus is saying. Because the most powerful way to understand Anawim is to remember the times where Israel was subject to exile, especially and specifically the exile of Babylon. See, if you weren't useful to Babylon, you got left behind. And you really haven't been put down until your enemy came and conquered you and said, uh, you know what, you're kind of worthless. I'm just going to leave you back here to fend for yourself and we're going to take everyone else. Not a good feeling, right? The words for these people, the Anawim, is the pathetic, the pitiful, the worthless. And this is really important for us to have an understanding of this because we are all going to have some anawi moments in our lives, okay? I hate to burst your bubble, but we are all basically losers. Losers who have some moments of winning, but over the course of life have some great losses and then some extremely tragic, spectacular losses. But we don't like to think of ourselves as losers, right? We like to think of ourselves as winners, this is why my son changes what football team he's rooting for depending on the score, right? <laughs> it helps our ego to be seen as winners. I can remember, let me give you an example, as a freshman in college, the most important thing as a freshman boy in college is how you do on the intramural football team, okay? It cements your status for the next four years to come. And so one of my hallmates was organizing the football team for our hall. And I was so excited. I was pumped. I'm like, man, I've been doing this my whole life. I can't wait. Let's go throw the football. Something happened to me in that moment that has never happened before and ever since. We're just out in front of the dorms trying to throw the football. My shoulder locks up like I should be in one of those slings. And I can't throw it five yards. I mean, I'm throwing it with no spiral in the opposite direction. It looked like I had never thrown the football in my entire life. My shoulder was hurting so bad I had to stop early and go inside. And I knew this wasn't good. It wasn't too much later that I heard the conversation around the hall. Hey, man, Tyler can't throw a football to save his life. We don't want him on the team. Okay. And sure enough, I, I was like, hey, do you have a backup spot or something? No, 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 team's full. No team, you know, so I had to recruit the boys that uh, played video games to be on my team. So <clears throat> I say this because we all know what it's like to be picked last in life. But going deeper, we know real life examples of our failures of being fired, of not being accepted to a college, the unfaithfulness of a spouse, a poor financial or life decision that leaves us with this feeling of failure. And this was the case for the first hearers of Jesus. To hear this, to hear all these losers generally sitting at Jesus' feet saying, you're blessed. The feeling would have been extraordinary. I, I suspect the most remarkable thing then is still the most remarkable thing now. Jesus starts off his greatest teaching with, of all things, a blessing. A blessing. So once we've received this blessing, which is maybe a very hard thing to do, which takes a life's work to receive this blessing from God, 
then we receive an identity of who we are, of what our purpose is. So first the blessing, and now for the identity. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made, not be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a lampstand and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So metaphors in salt, of salt and life have become a normal phrase in Christian culture today. I suspect any Christian worth their weight in salt has heard these metaphors before. But do we really have a good definition of them? See, salt and light require two things. First, both of these elements are different from the other thing that they are going to be a part of. Light is only useful when it's around darkness. Salt makes a big impact on bland food. Second, salt and light penetrate their environments. They go into all pieces of their environments and they change their environments. Light so you can see, salt so you can taste. Neither light nor salt exist for their own sake. The salt needs to stay salty to fulfill its function. The light needs to be lit in order to light the room. The two metaphors imply a turning outward mission in the world. Jesus is fulfilling the Hebrew scriptures that the Hebrews could not fulfill. Blessed in order to be a blessing, to be called a light to all nations. So what I am telling you is as Christians, we need to be more salty. And not just with our personalities. There needs to be something about us. As Christians, we're meant to be a shining example of the light in the world. And that doesn't mean we're always perfect. Sometimes as we strive to be perfect, like our Father in Heaven is perfect, sometimes it means asking for forgiveness. Sometimes it means extending mercy. And it means to live what it means, or it means to live our lives in this grace and mercy of Jesus. And so there's an age-old question that comes up here. It sounds like this. Is there too much church in the world or is there too little church in the world? Let me say it again for you. Is there too much world in the church or is there too little church in the world? Here's what I mean by this. Are Christians so separated from the world that they can't make any difference from the world? Or have Christians become so much like the world that they aren't different enough from the world to make any difference? For the majority of you here who didn't grow up in churches of Christ, um, coming out of the 50s and 60s, you were expected to go to church three times a week. If you didn't go to church three times a week, it was suggested and sometimes uh, even said that you might be in jeopardy of not going to heaven. 
And so you would attend faithfully Sunday morning Bible class. Then after Sunday morning Bible class, it would be Sunday morning worship and communion and the sermon. Then you'd come back Sunday night and you'd do it all over again. Bible class, worship, communion. And they would even, they offered communion again for the people who weren't there in the morning. And it was socially acceptable in those moments to glare at everyone who wasn't there in the morning. Why weren't you here? That's what they taught us. And then you'd come back in the middle of the week on Wednesday night and do it all over again then. Now, this is how I lived over Christmas break. You're thinking, what a great vacation, Tyler. Ah, I guess it's a preacher vacation. And there's an observation that I had coming out of this that Aubrey and I talked about on the way home. The primary thing I noticed is we spent so much time studying, I couldn't even keep the lessons together in my mind, and this is what I do for a living. Like, what did we talk about five times ago now, which was one day ago? You couldn't even focus on what you were learning. But also, we spent so much time together as Christians, we didn't spend time with anyone who wasn't Christians. We were always together with each other. Now let's look at the other side. The other side, uh, I could point out that uh, pre-COVID, the average Christian in our country attends church two times a month. Post-COVID, it's cut in half. The average Christian now attends church one time a month. How can you have anything? How can you stay committed to the ways of God? How can you have a Christian community if you are not coming together and uh, studying and working together? See, we can talk about all these big, scary threats to Christianity, which are very real, but you know the biggest threat of all of them? Complacency. Complacency. It is the lukewarmness of our faith. It is the temptation to just be like the people around us, to just assimilate into the world and the culture and follow slowly over time without realizing it, the ways of the world instead of the ways of God. So which way do we follow? Neither. The salt and the light gives us a different path to follow in our faith. The call is to know the teachings of Christ, to stay committed in the teachings of Christ, to be committed to them enough so when you go out into the world, you are the salt and light. I am told at one time when you were leaving this building through the lobby above the doors was a sign that said, the mission field starts here. I think we need to find that sign and put it back up there or make a new one. Because I think we need this reminder that, okay, we get this time together every week where we get to be with fellow Christians and it's such a good feeling and, it, and it's great for us to be together. But when we go out, we're salt and light. And there's something important that I need to point out here. Because if I were teaching this, it would be really tempting to say, hey, you know what? You should try to be salt and light. It would be really helpful or, or to say, okay, we're going to work really hard this week, guys, to be salt and light. But there's just a problem. Jesus didn't teach it this way. Did you catch what Jesus said? Jesus said, you are salt and light. This is who you are. <laughs> and I think sometimes we say, what do you mean, Jesus? I don't feel like salt and light all the time. So in other words, as followers of Jesus, we're not just here for our own sake. We're also here for the sake of the world. The Sermon on the Mount is a call for Christians to live 
for the sake of the world. The world really needs two elements. It needs light and it needs salt. It doesn't need a bunch of Christians who climb into their Christian storm shelters and never come out in fear that they would be infected by the world. And it doesn't need a bunch of Christians who look exactly like the world around it. We are the lampstand. That's what we're called to be. And this feels so intimidating, and we might not feel like we're living up to the standard. So let me explain this with this met- metaphor. Marriage. Those of you who are married, can you think back to your wedding day? Can you think back to the ceremony? You walk into the ceremony single, and you walk out married. The most powerful words in every wedding ceremony is, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You walk out as you are a husband, you are a wife. So I remember on Aubrey and I's wedding day, the, pro, the, the main feeling I had, especially as we were pulling away, and the rest of the day was, I'm a husband now? <laughs> like, how do I not screw this thing up, right? I was like, I am in way over my head. Luckily, Aubrey learned how to be a wife much quicker than me, which meant a lot of patience and forgiveness. But this is the same thing in our baptism. We make the commitment to follow Jesus, and we come up out of that water in our own death, burial, and resurrection, and we come out as salt and light. And somewhere in that mystery of not feeling capable, the Holy Spirit is working on us and the Holy Spirit is working in the world. Let me give you another example of that. Uh, High school students and middle school students, think about how many cuss words you hear in a day. I am guessing, you guys should count sometime and let me know. I'm guessing our high school, middle school students hear hundreds of curse words every single day as they pass through the walls of their middle school and high schools. Hundreds. And so, as you think about that, in school one day, I'm sitting in class next to a girl known for being a little scandalous. She's wanting to have a deeper conversation about things. I'm just trying to focus on the assignment. And out of nowhere, she goes, you're a Christian, right? Now, I felt so called out. I was not trying to be salt and light in this moment, okay? I'm like, shh, whisper. What do you mean? Am I a Christian? I was going full Peter in the moment. Denial. Like, who? Me? What? Where? Uh, Luckily, no rooster crowed. But I was worried it was going to (laughs) happen. Why would you think that? I responded. She goes, oh, it's because you don't cuss. It's like... I wanted to cuss in that moment. I I was like, I felt so called out. Like, what do you mean? And we had this conversation, I was seen as a safe person just because I didn't talk like everyone around me. It was the weirdest thing. I was being used as salt and light and I didn't even know it. So do we need to strive as Christians to be the best salt and light? We can't, absolutely we need to. But don't be surprised in life when God is using you as salt and light and you might not even realize it. So let me wrap this sermon up with the reason why we climb mountains. Let me tell you why we climb mountains. We climb mountains to get a different perspective in life. We climb them to overcome something, maybe in nature, but mostly in ourselves. We climb mountains to imagine the world in a different way. 
And as it turns out, this is the goal of the Sermon on the Mount. The goal of the Sermon on the Mount is to change us from the inside out. When one generally thinks about the Sermon on the Mount, they think about the teachings and instructions. And believe me, we are going to get to those, okay? However, that's not how the Sermon on the Mount starts. The Sermon on the Mount starts with receiving. See, I'm convinced that as humans, most of the time, we feel like we live under some curse. And we come to the Beatitudes and we ask ourselves, can we really believe this? Can we really believe that in the most difficult times in our lives, God is going to be there with, of all things, a blessing? Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount with a blessing and a new identity. I think it is impossible to live out the commands that are coming on the Sermon on the Mount without first receiving this blessing. So in order to try to live out the commands that are coming, we must first believe we are blessed by God. If we don't think that the Good Shepherd is close to our side, watching over us, we're going to grind away, trying to be the best person we can, and never get there because our approach we take is so important. If we're going to try to live out these commands in some way to earn God's favor, that is not what it's all about. Rather, we are trying to emulate Jesus out of this deep reservoir of love, higher than the mountains, deeper than the sea, this reservoir of love. He has for us because Jesus is offering us a better way to live. So as we leave today, your work is to receive, to receive this blessing from God, the blessing that we are ordinary people, not too different from the people in Jesus's day, and even in our hardest, deepest, most painful moments of life, we're blessed. But we're not just blessed for our own selfish gain. We're not just always receiving. We are blessed to be a blessing. Our identity as Christians is to be salt and light. So even when it may not seem like it, the Holy Spirit is working through us to change our environments. So let's thank God for these blessings and this identity as we go to God in prayer. God, as we come before you, May we feel your love. May we feel your grace. May we feel your mercy. May we leave here believing something different that this world's not under a curse, that you are reversing the curse of this world. That the story of the world, that the story of the Bible is you coming to save us. So we thank you for being our God. We thank you for sending your son to earth, to stand on that hillside to teach us. So God, may we receive, may we receive this blessing of the Beatitudes. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear what it truly means to be blessed in this life. God, may your spirit embolden our hearts, may it give us passion and courage that we are salt and light, that there's something that we do that makes a big difference in the world. Help us to believe that, God. Help us to be a light in this community. Help us to make an impact, to change it, to go out and to be your hands and feet. So thank you for Jesus who makes it all possible. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.